Welcome to FMC Radio, your officially unofficial source for all things Free Methodist. From in-depth discussions with key FMC leaders to daily updates from General Conference, we want to keep a consistent stream of information flowing to you regarding where God is leading the Free Methodist Church. I'm your host, Josh Avery, and I want to invite you to sit back, relax, and join us as we learn together now what it means to be Free Methodists in this episode of the FMC Radio Show. Hey everybody, it's been a while. It seems like it's been some time since I've last talked to you. It's February 17th, 2020. This is episode 137. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've been away for a little bit, and so the show hasn't been on the last two weeks. It seems, I seem like out of place here. Um, I was actually on vacation, and of course, if you know anything about me, you've listened to the show long enough, um, you know that I'm a Disney fan. You know that uh, I love Disney, and so my dad actually had retired from the park district that he was working at for quite some time, from for decades. And uh, so for his retirement, my family and, and him and my mom uh, went on the Disney Fantasy, which is one of their cruise liner boats, and uh, went down to a diff- couple different ports. Um, so it was pretty fun. Um, it was a good trip. It was a relaxing trip. Also, there's a lot of things to do as well, so it wasn't just sitting back, which I'm, I'm kind of one of those active people uh, that likes to do stuff instead of just sitting back on vacation. Um, but one thing I wanted to mention about that that was kind of cool, um, on Sunday morning, I found out um, a couple things before we went onto the ship, uh, that on Sunday morning, they had designated a place on the ship for a non-denominational service. And what I found out beforehand is that it's guest-led. And so I called the guest services beforehand and said, hey, you know, I'm a free Methodist pastor. Um, Is there a way that I could be involved in that service? And they said, well, you just go to guest services when you get on the ship and, you know, kind of figure it out with them. So sure enough, when I got on the ship, I went to guest services and they said, yeah, well, uh, we have, you know, it's called the Outlook. We have this, um, this area marked off for for a non-denominational service on Sunday morning. Um, But they said, yeah, it's guest-led, and basically, you know, you just show up and you guys just kind of figure it out. Whoever wants to lead and whoever wants to do whatever, you know, you just do it at that point. So I was like, okay. (laughs) So it's kind of strange. Um, So I showed up a little bit early, about 15 minutes early. There's another family there um, from a Baptist church. And uh, soon after, two women from a Catholic church showed up and and so on and so forth until there's about 15 to 20 people there. Um, And uh, it was weird because nobody was set in charge. Everybody just showed up to the same room. Um, But also it worked out because I was the only person that had anything. I brought along an old sermon and kind of had something prepared. So I actually did the sermon on the Disney Fantasy um, a few Sundays ago. Um, And then they had a piano in the room. And so this woman um, who knew how to play organ and knew some familiar songs, a few hymns that everybody would know, Amazing Grace, you know, those types of things. Um, this little light of mine, I think she did. Just ones that everybody, you know, would know the words to without having to look anything up. Uh, she played a few songs and we sang. And then we had um, 
a chaplain, a woman who was a chaplain for the sheriff's department in California, and she did a prayer, and so we kind of just added everything together, and sure enough, it came came together. It was kind of cool, um, primarily because you had all these different backgrounds. Again, you had a Catholic group there, you had Baptists, you had so you know the Reformed people were represented. You had uh, the the um, Pentecostals represented, and so all these different areas where, you know, if you're on Twitter or Facebook, a lot of times you see these these arguments happening between, you know, the Pentecostals and the and the Catholics or, you know, the Baptists and the Free Methodists or whoever it is, right? Um, denominational differences. But what was cool was that everybody was working together. And even those who didn't have an active role in the service per se, um, we had some issues with the with the electric piano and some of the people just started running up and we had everybody kind of working together to make this thing work. So it was kind of a cool picture of all of these uh, guests who were on vacation um, but came together to worship God together. Um, and uh, so anyways, all that being said, that was that was a good time. And um, now we're back here in Youngstown, Ohio again, and uh, February 17th with the new episode. And so um, just a few things that I wanted to um, just bring your attention or mention you today. Uh, one is, um, I had already mentioned this on a previous show, but I want to bring it up again in case anybody has missed it yet. Um, if you've been reading Light and Life, it would be pretty hard for you to, to miss at this point. But um, I wanted to point out again the Light and Life Conversations group over on Facebook. I want to invite you to join that. Um, I know many have already joined, um, but it's a great place uh, for civil uh, conversation regarding theological issues, regarding... Um, conversations that happen via uh, further dialogue from the Light and Life magazine. Uh, what's really nice about this um, is there are a lot of Facebook groups out there to discuss theology, a lot of Facebook walls that have comments on them, you know, back and forth. But what happens is they're not moderated. You know, there's nobody to, besides maybe the person that owns that Facebook wall, to say, hey, that's gone too far, or, you know, we're not going to do that. There's no, there's no real rules. Um, but what's nice about Light and Life um, Conversations Facebook page is the Light and Life team and the communications team over at headquarters is able to kind of manage this page. And so we're not going to have people calling somebody else a name as we've seen on other Facebook pages um, or on other groups. So it's a very it's a place for civil. Maybe people have disagreements, sure, but it's going to be a civil disagreement. It's going to be a civil dialogue, debate uh, versus people getting out of hand and, and kind of arguing and fighting with each other. So I, I highly recommend that you join, um, you know, whether you just want to read through the comments for a while, whether you want to comment. Um, and if you have picked up the recent uh, February Light in Life, you'll obviously see in there the talking points section that what they do then is take um, quite a few actually, uh, three pages worth in the February. They take quite a few uh, comments from that actual page and then just publish them on a few pages of the magazine. And so people can, maybe if you don't have Facebook, but you say, oh, that sounds kind of cool. I'd like to hear what people say about, you know, this topic or that. Um, if Even if you don't have Facebook, you can always open up the Light and Life magazine and uh, check out some of those comments in the talking points section. And it's always fun to look through and see some of the names of people that I've met over the years. Um, one that I saw right on the first page there was uh, Michelle Roberts. And if you had been a listener for a long time, you'll remember she was the uh, person that dropped off. She makes the uh, smoking crackers. They were these amazing crackers. Like I heard so much about it at General Conference. And uh, so she finally 
finally dropped off one um, at my booth there at General Conference, and they were the, like the most delicious crackers I've ever had. Uh, but she comments on one of the things this this month, and uh, a bunch of other names in there. So it's just fun to uh, to read through some people's comments and thoughts on these issues, and be a part of the conversation if you can over at Light and Life Conversations on Facebook. Um, also, if you have not already, I know some people are just chomping at the bit uh, to get a hold of the 2019 Book of Discipline. <laughs> of course, it is 2020, um, but the new Book of Discipline is on pre-order right now. It will be delivered by March 31st. Um, and of course, the reason that it comes out a year after that that year, you know, it's called the 2019 Book of Discipline. The reason it comes out a year later in 2020 is because we had the uh, changes that needed to be made in 2019. They they occurred, they were voted on at uh, General Conference in 2019, but then you need the time for the wording, the editing, all that to happen so that they can then publish the book here and get it out to you by March. So um, I, I kind of joke when I say a lot of people are chomping at the bit. Uh, they, I, I joke, but there are many out there, including myself, who do want a copy of the new Book of Discipline for various reasons. I um, mean, for leaders, it's very important, um, but there are many others who have never even opened the Book of Discipline, and I, I think that's probably not necessarily a very good thing. Um, if you are in a free Methodist church and, and you're involved with the church, um, you should probably have at least a, a vague idea. You should have some sort of idea of what's in that book of discipline. Um, because if you don't know what you say you believe in, what is in that book, um, you don't know what you're what you're pledging yourself to as a member of the Free Methodist Church. Um, so I'm not saying you need to sit down with the whole book of discipline and read through every line by line and and you know know it by heart. Um, but it's good to have an idea of what the Free Methodist Church believes and what you are um, submitting yourselves to when you when you pledge yourself to the denomination in terms of a commitment in terms of membership. You know those types of deals. Um, or especially if you're if you're going to be ordained, you know, hey, what does it mean to be ordained in this denomination? What does this denomination believe beyond the basics? Um, you know, it's it's a good thing to pick up one of those, um, and they're on pre-order right now. Um, so uh, that being said, let's look at our uh, Free Methodist World Missions Prayer Guide for February 17th uh, to pray today for Paraguay. Pray for the 22 churches in Paraguay. Their vision is to reach lost people for Christ. Pray for effective ministry in their communities that will result in entire families coming to know Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and pray um, for these churches now. Dear God, I just thank you for the work that is being done in Paraguay and the 22 churches that are already established. Um, and we know, um, just like any any uh, church, we, we hope that any church, uh, the vision is to reach lost people for Christ. That is the ultimate uh, vision and ultimately to disciple these people, not just reach them and, and then leave them on the side of the road, but to disciple them. So we just pray that you will help this deep discipleship to happen, that the people will be reached and then they, they will be discipled into a better uh, life through your definition of a better life. Um, and we pray that uh, the leaders there would have an effective ministry and um, that not just the, the moms or the dads or just the kids, but that entire families would come to know Christ and would be able to, to, to move out and transform. Um, and uh, we just pray that um, whoever comes to Christ first, whether it is that child or, or the wife or whoever, but um, we just pray that uh, you would transform their life so that they can transform their families' lives. Um, that uh, the people that are closest to them and even strangers would see the changes 
in in these Christians' lives there in Paraguay, and that they would um, those 22 churches would be the catalyst to to a big um, radical reformation of of, of uh, lives there in Paraguay, and that people's lives would be radically transformed by the gospel. Um, and we just ask that you would begin to uh, reveal to these to these leaders how they can take that next step in that direction. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, if you've been listening to the show for a little while, you'll know that uh, it took us some time, but we actually just recently, a few months ago, finished up teaching through the book of James on a kind of, you know, sporadic basis every eight episodes or so, you know, so that comes out to maybe once every two months. Uh, We started teaching in year one, and we're almost uh, wrapped up in year three here. And so it took us about three years sporadically teaching uh, to get through the entire book of James through the podcast. And uh, you can go back and listen to any of those episodes. All the episodes are always available to listen to all the way from 1 to 137, you know, currently. Um, But as we wrapped that up a few months ago, I thought, well, what what might we do next? And uh, I was thinking about this and, and came up with the idea um, to not necessarily do a entire book study next, um, uh, you know, another scriptural book, um, but to look at a certain uh, facet of one of the Gospels. And uh, that Gospel would be the Gospel of John. Uh, now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John is the final Gospel uh, in the lineup, and it's also probably most likely the last gospel written. It is written by the apostle John. He also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he also wrote the book of Revelation. And so what's interesting about John is that he's very different. He's a very different author than the other gospel writers. You know, for example, Matthew goes into a genealogy. He says, it'd be interesting to start by letting people know kind of who gave birth to who leading up to Jesus, you know, to see that he was related to uh, some of the heroes of the faith. He was related to David. You know, it's it's interesting, but it's also, you know, has ties into the Messiah. It ties into the prophecies. You know, all these things are important, Matthew says. You know, Luke, he goes and he tells the story of Jesus' birth. And, he, you know, he gets into the details of some of that stuff. And um, so there's all sorts of different strategies. Uh, where should we start the story? But John, the gospel writer John, he he does things very differently. He doesn't start with a genealogy or a story or, you know, the birth narrative. He starts with uh, essentially, you know, poetic language. He starts with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, he was with God in the beginning. You know, through him was all, all things were made. Not, without him, nothing was made that has been made. And he just talks about... You know, symbolically, light and life and darkness and all these sort of themes before jumping into the story. It takes by verse 19, he finally kind of gets to the first story uh, in chapter one. So verses one through 18 are all like symbolism and connecting the dots between, uh, you know, his metaphors. And uh, so he does things very, very differently. He speaks in a different way. He kind of has this deeper reality to him. I read one theologian that said that John is kind of uh, like a pool that is deep enough 
to dive into, but shallow enough for a child to play in. And it's this idea that, man, there's so many layers that if you really want to get into it, there are so many deep layers to the Gospel of John that he has kind of put into his book. But also, if you just wanted to read through it, you could get the get the idea. You don't have to have a degree to, you know, in theology to understand the Gospel of John. You could get in there and just read it and go, wow, that's a pretty good story about the, the story of Jesus, you know, by reading John. Um, so there are very many layers that if you want to dive deeper, you can. And so as I was thinking about what to do next in terms of our scriptural studies on an ongoing basis here on the show, I thought, why don't we walk through one of those deeper layers? And that is uh, what I want to call some, some little, a little treasure hunt that John has placed throughout his gospel. And we're going to look at the first set of clues today. Um, John does something fairly interesting uh, at the beginning of his book only. He numbers and records the sequence of days. So we're going to actually today be looking at John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. But before we get there, we, we find that John led up to uh, chapter 2 by recording, carefully recording the sequence of days. So, for example, in verse 19, he says, Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent the priests and the Levites to ask him who he was. So we have John the Baptist. And so in verse 19, this is day number one. A delegation is sent to question John the Baptizer. Now day number two occurs in verse 29. Uh, The gospel writer says the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. So we know that's day number two. In verse 35, we find out from the gospel writer, it says the next day, John the baptizer was there again with two of his disciples. So this is day three in verse 35. Peter and Andrew follow Jesus. And then in verse 43, we see the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. So that's day four from the beginning of John's gospel story. And this is an incident with Nathaniel. And then we have um, chapter two, verse one, what says, it says on the third day, a wedding took place. And so this is three days later. So this is on day seven. So just in case that made a little was a little confusing with all the talking about the day here and day there. Uh, essentially, John begins his story of Jesus in in verse nineteen. Right? We have the symbolism, the metaphors in John one one through eighteen. By verse nineteen, he starts the story with the story of John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. That's the very first day of John's story. He then records carefully, hey, this happened the next day in verse 29, day two. Verse 35, hey, the next day, day three. The next day, verse 43, that's day four. And then three days later, that's chapter two, verse one, is the wedding at Cana. So this is day number seven. John has carefully recorded, and after this point, it's interesting, he doesn't record anymore. He doesn't say, hey, then five days after that or the next day. He doesn't give any importance to recording the number of days anymore. And if you've if you've done any study in the scriptures or if you've ever uh, been in church for a long time, something may ring a bell in your mind. I said this is the seventh day that this occurred, the seventh day that he's been reco- carefully recording. And seven is a very important number in the scriptures. It represents a lot of different things, but seven and multiples of seven are super important. So John is recording, he's carefully recording that something happened on the seventh day of his story here. 
And there's something significant that he's subtly pointing out. As we mentioned earlier, there's many different layers uh, to John, and it would be easy for us to read through the, the Gospel of John and never even give a second thought to why the days are being carefully recorded or what he could possibly mean by all of this. Um, but there is a purpose. So what does John want a careful reader of his gospel to uncover? Well, we'll need to read the story of in chapter 2 to find out exactly what he's hidden here on this seventh day. What does he want to point us to? What significance is here on this seventh day? What is the significance of seven? Well, let's find out. Let's look at uh, John chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 3. So on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Okay, so this is the wedding celebration. Probably a familiar story to many people listening, right? So this, the kind of the background here, we see Jesus, Mary, and the disciples. They were all invited. Uh, this kind of suggests that the wedding was probably for a relative or a close family friend, the fact that they were all invited to, to, to be a part of it. Um, it's also possible because of the details of Mary's involvement with and her concern with the wine uh, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, may have had some involvement with the catering arrangements. You know, she's obviously very concerned about the fact that there's no more wine. And that may be because of a family connection or it may be that she had some sort of connection to the catering. Um, but regardless of that fact, they are at a wedding and an ancient wedding was very different in a lot of ways than our current weddings are, especially in America. Uh, a wedding in the ancient world, uh, the celebration for a wedding could last as long as a week. So we're not talking about just a couple of hours. Hey, we need to make sure, you know, there's one more hour of the party left and, and we need to get some wine here. They're out of wine and we don't know, you know, how early on or how late into the party this is, but this could be a very long time that they're going to be out of wine. And that's, that's very disturbing in the ancient world. Um, in our American culture, you know, uh, if someone's getting married, the financial responsibility um, customarily by custom, it lies with the bride and the bride's family. You know, the bride's parents usually pay for the food and kind of the details of the wedding. Um, but actually in the ancient world, in the Israelite culture, the financial responsibility is the opposite. It lies with the groom. Um, so if somebody runs out of, I shouldn't say if somebody, if they run out of, if their party runs out of supplies, that is embarrassing. That is disgraceful, specifically for the groom. Of course, for the couple at large, but for the groom, because he was the one who was supposed to be making sure that there was enough supplies he was financially responsible for this, and now they're going to run out, and everybody's going to, every time they think of that couple, they're going to think of the fact that, hey, they ran out of wine at the wedding. You know, they ran out of the supplies. Um, and in fact, it could have gone possibly further than that because historical evidence actually shows that upset relatives of the bride could legally sue the groom 
in such a situation. So that's a that's a pretty serious situation. It wasn't just some people are annoyed and then it's like, yeah, they'll get over it. Uh, no, like that that hey, you sh you were you had a responsibility here to provide things for this party, and you're not providing for your guests. Well, we're gonna sue you for this. Uh, has, some historical evidence shows that that could be possible. Um, I mean, I think that's taking things a little too far, but hey, uh, you know. Um, I think it takes a little far it, it, to, to sue somebody over the fact that they ran out of wine. But you know what? Um, that would be a scary place to be in, right? If, if that was you and you were responsible and you were going to get sued on your wedding day over losing out on the wine. Uh, but even the embarrassment would be punishment enough. So let's see. So we, that kind of gives us the background. Now let's see uh, Jesus' response here. Jesus' first response in verse 4. He says, Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. Now, in our modern world, um, when we read that, we, dear woman, he calls his, his mother, dear woman. Um, he does say dear, but like there's other passages where he just says woman. And it's like almost sounds, it, it sounds very offensive. It sounds, you know, like he's trying to downplay uh, his mother or the other women that, he's, that he calls woman. Um, in our culture, we, we just can't imagine how that could be respectful at all. Uh, but we need to be clear about that phrase. Uh, it's very hard to find any English equivalent to what he says here when he says, dear woman. Um, it's not a, like a, a in, um, in endearing term necessarily, uh, but it is, it is a very courteous term. It's a very respectful term. It's, it's not uh, downplaying anybody. It's not uh, trying to put down his mother uh, in even a, a, a tiny bit of the way. Um, essentially, uh, the phrase that he uses to try to explain it the best way, it's a direct rebuke, uh, but it's not rude. It's not rude at all. It's abrupt to get her attention, uh, the, the phrase that he uses, um, but it's a direct, direct rebuke to say, listen, it's not my time right now. My time has not yet come. And in the Gospel of John, whenever Jesus says, my time has not yet come, the time for him to begin his public ministry is, is what he's referring to. So he's, she's, he's just trying to get her attention by using this phrase, which has been translated, dear woman. Uh, he is in no way um, being... being uh, uh, wrong, wrong in what he says, or or being rude to her in any way. So he pairs that that phrase that he uses with the question, "Why do you involve me?" And by rebuking his mother, what Jesus is doing is uh, deeper than just saying this to his mother. Uh, Jesus is declaring at the beginning of his ministry, right here is the beginning of his ministry here in John, and, and he is declaring that he is free. He is to be free of any human advice or agenda. He can't, even if it's his own mother, his own disciples, his own best friends, they can't just come to him and say, hey, now we're going to do this. No, he has a deeper agenda. Uh, the deeper agenda is for him to follow his father's will. And that's a big theme in the Gospel of John. Throughout the Gospel of John, as you read it, you'll see, hey, I, I do the will of my father, I do the will of my father, on and on and on. Um, so nobody neither Mary nor anybody else, no matter how close they were to Jesus, could approach Jesus with their ideas via an inside track to say, well, you know, for anybody else, I wouldn't do this. But for you, yeah, sure. No, it's only in the timing that God the Father says. So even family ties need to be set to the side for Jesus' divine mission. That's ultimately what this verse 4 is all about. Him saying, why do you involve me to his mother? Uh, he's declaring something through that that's much deeper than just his mother here. Now let's look at verses 5 and 6. 
His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So Mary responds. He says, hey, why do you involve me? My time's not yet come. And she says to the servants, she doesn't even respond to him, at least not recorded. She, she says to the servants, well, do whatever he tells you. And this just, this response exemplifies a kind of persevering faith, doesn't it? Uh, she's rebuked on the family tie that, hey, you know what? I, I can't just do whatever because you're my mother because I have a, 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 a greater mission here by following my father. But so she's rebuked in that, but then she's content to leave the matter in Jesus' hands, to say, listen, whatever he says, you know, do that. And this pattern um, actually occurs again a few times in the Gospel of John, where Jesus initially seems to refuse, where he says, listen, I, I, it's not time for that, or, you know, I, I'm my mission is to the Jewish people, not to the Gentiles, or, you know, he, he kind of seems to refuse somebody coming to him for something. But then, after a, a second uh, demonstration, after a further demonstration of faith, he actually then helps. He actually does what the initial person was asking them to do. And this is an example of that. It's not as if uh, Jesus was convinced and say, wow, you know what? She's still believing, so all right, I guess I'm going to do it. You know, I, I didn't want to, but I guess I will. No, it's, it's almost um, as if Jesus says what he says so that that person can, can have a deeper faith, so that that person can can exemplify that perseverance, that faith. So they turn to the water jars, right? There tells us about the water jars. And uh, there are these six stone water jars. And together, these pots hold between 100 to 150 gallons of water. Um, because we saw 20 to 30 gallons each, and we times that times six. So 100 to 150 gallons, I mean, that's quite a bit. This is going to last for some time now. It holds water, so that's the problem. We we wish that it held some wine, but it doesn't. It holds water at this point in the story. And so it's specifically noted here that these six jars were actually being used for ceremonial washing, a fact that is pointed out very purposefully, to say the least, by the gospel writer. Now, we've been talking a lot about this story here and, and the details of the wedding, but this is a major clue in the treasure that John is hiding here in the passage about day seven. So again, let me say this. The fact that these stone jars were used for ceremonial washing by the Jews is a huge clue. Keep that in the back of your minds. We'll come back to it in a little bit as we get to the end of the passage to kind of put all our clues together and see what John's saying about this day seven. So what was ceremonial washing? Maybe that would help us to clarify this clue a little bit. Well, hand washing in the ancient world was a tradition and custom that Jews were expected to follow, but it had no connection to any Old Testament scripture. So you can't go back and say, well, in Deuteronomy, it actually said, you know, you got to wash your hands to be clean before God or something. It doesn't, doesn't say anything like that. It was just a tradition. It was a custom. The Jews followed it. Um, you know, it was a, a cleanliness thing, you know, just like we might wash our hands before dinner. Uh, but it was also a ceremonial thing to say, listen, I'm... I'm uh, symbolically cleansing myself. I'm cleaning my hands uh, before a meal um, and before other things as well. You would, you would wash your hands of things uh, ceremoniously or symbolically as well. So that's what we see. So this is, this is what we see before us, the, the ceremonial washing jars, six stone jars holding up to 100 to 150 gallons of water. Verses 7 to 10. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. 
They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. So this is the master of the banquet here. And this is uh, the amazing miracle that has happened. And not everybody knows about it, right? So the master of the banquet here is probably, you know, the chief steward or the head waiter, um, somebody who is kind of in charge of that catering uh, aspect of the, of the banquet, probably pretty stressed up to this point. Um, and neither... Um, oops, I'm looking at the wrong portion um, of my notes here. So, uh, so he was in charge of catering, right? Uh, and perhaps, uh, possibly even in charge of the location where the wedding banquet was being held. This guy is a pretty important person in terms of, of the wedding itself. And he goes around and he tastes the different thing, makes sure everything's good before it gets served to the guests. So he tastes this water that's been turned into wine. He doesn't know the details of where this wine has come from. And he is amazed by this. He, 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 what did he say here? He says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. This is the best wine this guy has tasted. And the wine itself, there's always kind of a hang up on the wine, right? People have that discussion uh, depending on how, um, how, how opposed you are to drinking of alcohol. Some people have said, well, I don't think it was really, you know, alcoholic wine. Other people say, well, yes, it was, you know, and, and they go back and forth. Historically, this is what we have. Historically, we know that in this time, this was not just grape juice. It, there was alcohol in the wine. Uh, but historically, it would be that... Uh, Wine in the ancient world was diluted with water to let it go a little further. So if that was the case, it was a little less strong than an American beer. So we're talking about, yes, there would have historically likely been alcohol in this wine, but it wasn't as if it was super strong, you know, 10% alcohol, 5% alcohol that everybody's getting all drunk all over the place from, from having a couple cups of wine here. Uh, it was diluted with water, at least normally. Um, and so that's historically the best we can understand uh, about the alcohol content of the wine, which is what everybody seems to always be concerned about. Um, one of the theologians that comments on this says, there's no grounds for conclusions regarding the degree of intoxication of the guests at the wedding. Uh, you know, so everyone gets hung up on that when they read this story, kind of debating or discussing, you know, wondering about, did Jesus contribute towards people getting drunk? But there is no, there, there's no way that we could conclude either way about who was drunk or who wasn't, right? The only thing we know uh, based upon drunkenness uh, about this in this passage is, is the head, head waiter's response, the, the master of the banquet's response where he says, hey, normally what happens is when people have gotten a little bit too much to drink, then people bring out the cheaper wine. But he doesn't say anything about the state of the guests at this party. He's just making a general statement. Um, so John's point in writing this, the gospel writer's point is, is not to point out who was drinking and who wasn't, who had too much to drink. No, his point is simply to prove through verse, verse 10 that the wine that Jesus provides is superior to anything that anybody else provided, to, superior to anything else. So this is, this is the miracle, right? This is what has happened. And again, you probably have, have heard this before. You've heard this story told before. Um, but what does this tell us? What I mean, we get to the end of it and we say, well, okay, uh, the miracle is um, that Jesus turned the water into wine. What does that mean? You know, the seven days of chapters one and two led us to this. The next day, the next day, three days later, okay, 
What does it mean? All the clues are here to lead us to the treasure that John has hidden, the deeper meaning just under the surface. So before we can figure that out, let's review the clues of this passage. Let's see kind of what we have before us. First, we have, even looking back at John chapter 1, remember the metaphors of John 1? Uh, he began with echoes of creation. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And of course, we know that's Jesus. Anybody who would have read John 1, 1, um, even today, may, may have memories of, hey, Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John's creating that parallel, right? Um, he, he begins his book with echoes of creation, John 1, 1. That's the first clue. Echoes of creation through Jesus. Then our second clue, seven days leading to the event. Okay, we've established that. You'll remember this, the third clue, the thing I mentioned earlier, the six jars we have for ceremonial washing here um, in verse 6, the ceremonial washing that was happening. And then uh, the, the final clue, the fourth and final clue here, is that the wine Jesus provides is superior from all the other wine that was could have been provided or, or that this head uh, master of the banquet had seen. And so these are our four clues, right? Now, here's where we put these things together and what we see in the deeper meaning. I'll kind of walk you through this here. Um, Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus. Genesis, if you think back to Genesis, so the, the parallels to Genesis, right? John 1, 1, Genesis 1, 1. Genesis creation week culminated in humans being created, right? There was, on the seventh day, God rested, but you had day six after all the rest of creation, humans were created. And then after humans were created, we know what happened in the story. Uh, they ultimately sinned. They ultimately failed. They ultimately created that distance between themselves and God. That's the ultimate big problem in, in the story of Scripture. That's the, that's the big one. we got to figure out how can we bridge that gap between us and God. So that's the Genesis story. And the creation week culminated in that great creation of people uh, who then failed. And John charts out a first week also. He starts within the beginning, and then he charts out a, a week in the life of Jesus, culminating in the old tradition, the rules that humans invented to get closer to God, like the ceremonial hand washing referenced here, being transformed by God himself into something superior. Now, let me kind of break that down just a little bit more in case it didn't make sense. John charts out a week, and on day seven of John's week, the first week that he records of Jesus' ministry, Jesus takes what was used for the old way of things. If I wash my hands, I'm going to feel closer to God because I'm symbolically cleansed, right? The hand washing, the ceremonial washing in verse 6. He takes that, what was used for that type of thing, and he provides something. He transforms it into something that is far superior than the old thing ever could have been. So in other words, this isn't just a story about water turning into wine. Oh, that was a pretty cool thing to happen. Jesus did this little trick and, you know, everybody had wine and that was cool. Let's move on. This is a story about all of creation being transformed into a place where there no longer needs to be a distance 
between man and God. The old order of creation has passed, and a new age in Jesus has arrived. Now, I mean, you may think, wow, that's, a, that's pretty deep for, for this. Um, did, you, you know, did you just come up with this and, and just make this up off the top of your head? Um, no, I didn't. I, I, I did a lot of research for this um, and read a lot of commentaries and uh, a lot of theologians talking about this uh, very thing. Um, it was amazing when I first read it, and I wanted to share it with you today because it, it's, it's as I mentioned earlier, you know, if you're just reading through the Gospel of John, you would never put two and two together on this, and I never would. Um, but John is so deep, and what he does, we know uh, just from his symbolism uh, time and time again, he, he is so deep and has put so many depths, uh, layers, and, and, and meaning into his Gospel um, that it is not shocking to me that he has charted out these seven days so clearly. He doesn't do that from now on. I mean, we could look at verse 12 after this story, and it says, after this, he went down to Capernaum and with his brothers and sisters, and they stayed there for a few days. He doesn't chart out days after this. He doesn't say the next day or three days later. He doesn't care about counting the days anymore. So he has specifically counted seven days. That's important, and I and I truly believe it. Um, the fact that it connects to Genesis and that, he, he starts his gospel with Genesis and then charts out seven days. And, and this idea that all of creation is transformed through Jesus, the old stuff is going away. The new stuff has arrived. And he, he brings it into literally, I mean, the old stuff, the old ceremonial jars of, of water have now been transformed into the new stuff, the wine. I mean, literally, but even metaphorically, even symbolically, this is something much deeper than just wine and just water. And that's pretty amazing. But you know what? Um, one thing I, I always love about like scavenger hunts and treasure hunts is it's always fun to follow the clues, isn't it? And we kind of did that today. We followed through, some, uh, through the scavenger hunt, through a few clues here and uh, found our way to the end. But what if you were in a treasure hunt and you, know, you went through a lot of clues in the hunt and you got to the final thing and it was you know, a, a box. Maybe you had to dig it up at the end and you pull it up and you open it up and maybe uh, there's some treasures in there. There's some candy or something depends on who's putting it on, right? There's a bunch of really fun stuff inside and wow, I, you know, I finished it. I finished the treasure hunt and you uncovered the, the treasure. Um, but then you flipped over the box and on the bottom, you're like, wait a minute, what's this? And you see on the bottom of the treasure box is inscribed another clue. You go, well, wait a minute. There's another part to this mystery. There's a, there's the next layer, a, even something even more. Um, and what's cool is uh, that's kind of what we see here in John chapter 2. Because look at John uh, chapter 2, verse 11 now. After we everything we've just said, uh, where the master of the banquet tasted the water and he did have been turned into wine and he made his comments. John 2, 11, it says this, the first of his miraculous signs... Jesus performed at Canaan, Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. John says the first of the miraculous signs. He's counting again. This time he's counting towards something even more significant. In two, second, two chapters later, he'll point out the second one. He will specifically say, uh, hey, this was the second sign that Jesus did. Uh, after that, he will allow us to count on our own. But John specifically points out a few of the of the signs, and he, unlike there's a lot of other a lot of other books like Luke and um, Matthew who chart out many many different miracles, but John selects 
several miracles. And actually he selects, there's, there's really six miracles or we could actually argue seven miracles, um, depending on how we're looking at it, six to seven miracles in the Gospel of John. Um, and they are revealing something amazing about Jesus and not in a way of like uh, the old Omega code, like where we're going to find the hidden Bible code here or like there's something you've never heard about Jesus that is going to be revealed here in, in this in this secret treasure. It's nothing like that. Uh, it's, it's nothing groundbreaking that is not scriptural. But John has put these deep metaphors, this deep symbolism, and he has this treasure hunt for us. This journey is just beginning. Um, today we discovered a little bit about the first sign here in John chapter 2. But what I'd like to do over the course of our next scripture studies together is examine the other six signs. And I'd like to take you through each one of them. The next one we will see, uh, I believe it is in, I'm looking right now to double check. Uh, I think it's in chapter, I want to say chapter five, but maybe it's before that. I don't have it right in front of me. I should have. Um, I had to take a, take a look. Um, it may be in John chapter five. Uh, however, and all that to say, um, we're going to take time here on the show to examine each of John's signs and walk through the signs of the Gospel of John. And signs is just another word for miracle. Uh, the miracles of the Gospel of John and see where it leads us and what it reveals in terms of a deeper story about Jesus, about what he has come to do in the world. Just as we learned today about the old order of creation past and a new age in Jesus arriving, a new creation coming through him. Uh, and it will be an amazing journey. I hope that you'll continue to join me for these journeys as we go through the stories of the signs in John. And um, let's go ahead and pray and then, and then we'll wrap up for today. Dear God, I just thank you for this uh, this chance to be able to walk through John chapter 2 today and follow these clues in this treasure hunt that John has put in here. Um, and we thank you for um, the fact that any of us can pick up the Bible and, and read, but uh, that we can always get deeper. There's always the chance to go deeper with you. There's always the chance to learn something new. We don't come to the end of our of our studies with you and say, well, I learned it all. Uh, we can always, if we choose to, go go deeper and deeper. So we thank you for that today. Um, we just thank you that uh, you're with us and that you will continue to speak to us um, and that you would, um, we just ask that you will continue to reveal to us um, the deeper layers of, of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll be back next week.